Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and today I have the privilege of continuing our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. And today we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. So let's begin. Good morning and thank you. Thank you, worship team, for bringing us into the very presence of the living God. And thank you for your uh, being here. Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in the first 14 verses. Let's begin. But let's begin by prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Open us, Lord, to receive your word and then to respond as you have directed us, as you have called us. Father, we want to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus in all that we say and all that we do. Speak through your servant. Speak in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. The way some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have claimed and insisted upon their right to assemble and to worship gone together without apparent regard for the restrictions that are essential to bring this pandemic under control breaks my heart. And I wonder how non-Christians see us as a result. Now, don't get me wrong, that we have a system of government and justice that recognizes that we all have certain rights and freedoms is good. It's good for our well-being as a nation and as individuals. Those declared rights and freedoms guide uh, our legal system and protect us from tyranny, especially the so-called tyranny of the majority. Yes, we have those rights. They're guaranteed to us in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But we also have a responsibility to the community to minimize the spread of this disease. Rights and responsibilities go together. In effect, we can't have one for long without the other. As one very learned person put it, my right to swing my fist stops at the end of your nose. Not only do we have all share a responsibility toward our neighbors for their health and well-being, for which I should be ready to lay down my rights as an individual. But as Christians, we also share the much larger responsibility to guard the reputation of our Lord Jesus. We don't want to do anything or say anything that will place a stumbling block in the way of someone coming to him for redemption. To that end, we should gladly surrender our rights 
so that the Lord Jesus may be presented in the most attractive way possible in his crucifixion, his resurrection, his continuing ministry on our behalf, his mercy toward us sinners, his grace, his redemption that he purchased for us, and his soon return. It's interesting to note that in the discussion of rights and freedoms and responsibilities that are ours in the church, we frequently forget that our Lord Jesus himself laid down his rights and freedoms and privileges for us. As Paul put it in his letter to Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Paul was writing this letter to Corinth, he was facing this same debate. To paraphrase the argument that he faced uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Christ has made me free, and the Jewish dietary restrictions are of no concern to me. In fact, since I now know there is only one God, I know that the various pagan temples are merely meat markets. Where I purchase my food, in ancient Corinth, should be of no more concern than whether, in the 21st century, I shop at Independent or at Metro. And all that might be so, except that my freedom in Christ comes at a very practical price of love and responsibility for others and especially for my sisters and brothers in Christ. Paul concluded the first part of his argument to the Corinthians in chapter 8 and verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians 9, in the first six verses, Paul uses his own life and ministry as an illustration of this principle, and in the process lays out guidelines regarding supporting Christian ministries. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, in verses 1 through 6. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and brothers of the Lord, that is James and Jude and Cephas, another name for Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I 
who have no right to refrain from working for a living. The implied and expected answer to all these rhetorical questions is, of course, Paul, you are an apostle, and your authority cannot be questioned, for you did indeed see the risen Lord Jesus. And we Corinthian Christians, this church, is a kind of seal on that assertion. And yes, you have a right to support, to food and drink, to lodging and all the other necessities of human life. And yes, you have a right, if you were married, to bring your wife along and to expect that her needs would also be met. In Acts 18, we read of Paul's initial visit to Corinth. It was there that he met Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and he worked with them as tent makers. When he was not directly engaged in this work, he was to be found in the synagogue, preaching and debating with Jews and Gentiles. Only after Silas and Timothy joined him did he devote himself to full-time ministry, because they brought financial resources from Thessalonica and likely from Berea sufficient to support both themselves and Paul. But there is no indication anywhere that he ever received any contributions from Corinth for his own maintenance. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Back in the Old Testament, in Genesis 2 and verse 15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Adam's work directly impacted the food, the food he was able to eat. And after Eve and Adam had disobeyed, God, in declaring his curse on creation, restated the principle that our work is to be the means by which we meet our own needs, saying, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. That's from Genesis 3, verses 17 through 18. Whether in Paul's illustration, soldier or vine dresser or shepherd, or in the 21st century, doctor or food server or lawyer or store clerk or engineer or plumber or teacher or mechanic, The work we pursue is to be the means by which we provide for our needs. It is God himself who gives us the skills to pursue these various occupations so that we might fill our bellies and provide clothing and shelter and all the other things we need, both for ourselves and for our families. Paul continues his argument in in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, 
You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Up to this point, Paul had been speaking from the common experience of every adult. We all know that in order to provide for ourselves and our families, we need to be engaged in some form of gainful employment. But now in this portion, he refers back to the scripture of the Old Testament. Now the reference to given to oxen is a reflection of the ancient practice of using an animal, an ox, to thresh the grain to separate the useful seed from the husk. As the ox walks over the grain, the husk is broken and the grain is separated from it. Eventually, there's enough grain exposed that the farmer can then go on to the next phase of the process, which is winnowing. Winnowing is the process in which the grain and broken husks are thrown up into the air and the wind blows the lighter husks away while the denser grain falls back to the ground to be gathered and eventually ground into flour. But in the initial process of threshing, the ox walks over this grain. For a hungry animal, it must seem like a banquet in front of him. Now, a frugal farmer might want to muzzle the ox so that it could not eat the grain. I mean, that was our food, not the ox's. But the law specifically forbade that practice because the animal was doing work and that work should be suitably rewarded. Paul takes this as an illustration of the principle that Jesus himself stated when he was sending out the 72. He said um, in Luke 10, verse 5, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Now, if we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we realize that at this point, Paul slips to the conclusion of his argument and then comes back to another point. So this morning, I'll try to put this argument in order. And we're going to skip a couple of verses and go down to verse 13, where he makes another point from the Old Testament law. So 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Under the Old Testament, um, the Old Covenant, there was no property entitlement for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. While they might raise some animals for themselves, the bulk of their living came from the portion of the people's offerings that was allocated to them. They also received the hides of the sacrificial animals, which they could then sell for the other things they and their family needed. 
This kind of practice was also common in the pagan temples, with which most of the Corinthians were familiar. So, whether Jew or Gentile, they would understand. So now we pick up the, 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 the rest of the, the threads of this argument. First um, Corinthians 9 and 11 and 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? And verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So the general principle is clear. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's a good general principle that we should all observe, that we have an obligation to support those ministries that we value and those ministries from which we have been blessed both as a token of our gratitude as and as an investment in others. Our support is a reasonable requirement. Note that this is very different from the Old Testament practice of tithing. Under the economy, that economy, it was a demand of the law that I contribute to the priesthood and to the poor at least one-tenth of my income or of my agricultural produce. But there is no such requirement under the new covenant. Rather, we are expected to give to support those in need, um, or as a token of our gratitude, or because we value, we see the value in a particular ministry. In Paul's second letter to Corinth, when he was gathering donations to support the saints in Jerusalem who are, who were being hard hit by famine and persecution. He, he stated this in second Corinthians chapter nine, beginning at verse six. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Notice especially in this passage, verse 7. So 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
for God loves a cheerful giver. There is to be no compulsion such as the Old Testament law would place on us. The where, the why, the when, and the how much we give is our free choice, as informed by the working of the Holy Spirit within us. And when Paul declares the other principle, then Paul declares the other principle under which he worked as an illustration of the point of responsible freedom that he started addressing in chapter eight. So the second half of first Corinthians chapter nine and verse 12, the second half. All of this is reasonable. It's reasonable that you should give to support the work of the gospel. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So after reasserting the legitimacy of his apostleship, After firmly establishing his right to support as an apostle, Paul finally is in a position to say what he started out to say from the very beginning. That even though he had a perfect right to be materially supported by the church, he nevertheless chose not to exercise that right. Even though his choice meant difficult labor, and a more trying and stressful existence than he might otherwise have experienced, he was willing to do so for the sake of the gospel. Clearly, it was Paul's perception that for him to do what the other apostles were doing in the matter of receiving support would have been detrimental to the gospel's advance in Corinth and in at least some of the other places he worked. But why was that the case? Well, to get at this, remember that uh, when Paul first arrived, no one in Corinth had yet heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And there was no organized body, no organization that could provide Paul with recognizable credentials. He didn't have... uh a master's degree or a PhD. He didn't have um, ordination in, in some church denomination. To all appearances, Paul was just another philosopher or orator. And there were many of those. The problem was that those people, the, the philosophers and orators, did not always have the best reputation partly because of the way they supported themselves. Some of them charged fees for service. They sold admissions, but they were often accused of being greedy and manipulative. Others were supported by a wealthy patron, which left them open to the charge that they were speaking for their patron, being unduly influenced by their patron's wishes. Still others took to begging on the streets. They were sometimes seen as leeches and parasites, sponging off others. So given the situation, 
Paul chose a different route. He would support himself with his trade and from the gracious gifts he received from other churches. To do otherwise would have left the gospel open to slander, which Paul could not allow. And by taking on a trade, which was, by the way, considered to be a a very lowly thing to, to do, Paul was giving illustration to the gospel reality that God's strength is most clearly displayed in human weakness. One major significance of this passage is the gospel first stance of Paul that so ordered and influenced his life. His passion to keep the gospel free and clear from any hindrances, whatever that might might mean for him personally. Pardon me. Paul was presenting his own ministry as an illustration of his willingness to set aside his rights for the benefit of others. In this, he was following the footsteps of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who laid aside his own royal prerogatives and privileges for our sake to redeem us. Neither Paul nor Jesus before him insisted on their rights. Rather, they willingly laid down those rights for our benefit. As Paul had said at the at the end of the first part of his discussion, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. And this is the lifestyle that whose echo ought to reverberate through the lives of God's people wherever and whenever they may be found. The other person, whether a Christian sister or brother, or someone who does not yet know the Lord Jesus, the other person is far too important to allow my rights to stand between them and the Savior. It is something of this mindset that forms the foundation of Bible Fellowship Assembly. When the gospel is offered to the general public, such as at this 11 o'clock Sunday morning family Bible hour, we receive no offering. Even when we're meeting in person, the an offering is not received. There is never any suggestion that anyone would be expected to pay for the services that are rendered, or worse, that one might possibly be able to buy God's favor with a large enough donation. Further, most of us who are privileged to declare God's word uh, are privileged are otherwise engaged in various forms of employment or retirement such that we do not require the support of those to whom we minister. Now, to be sure, there are general expenses that need to be covered. The the very fact of being able to speak to you via Zoom um, requires that we pay certain prices. The, The Zoom subscription, the internet access, and so on. It takes a steady flow of income to ensure that the lights stay on, that the building is maintained, that ministry resources can be purchased, and so on. 
This assembly also partly supports Dave Jenkinson as a full-time worker. And it also supports, uh, in part, numerous other mission enterprises. For all that, we depend on the gifts of God's people, those who value the work of the gospel and those who choose to show their gratitude for it through financial giving. What broke Paul's heart about so many of the problems in the Corinthian church was, as one person put it, their baptized self-indulgence and their spiritualized self-centeredness that kept popping up all over the place. We see this reality at work in the divisions that Paul talked about in the first three chapters of this letter. We saw it in the issue of sexual immorality in chapter 5, and in the matter regarding lawsuits in chapter 6, and the questions regarding marriage and divorce in chapter 7. It was everywhere in Corinth. And unfortunately, it's everywhere in the church today. Both the church out there, and the church in here. When you look across the landscape of evangelicalism which word comes most readily to mind is it indulgence or is it sacrifice when you look across the landscape of your own heart what is the word that comes most readily to mind is it indulgence or is it sacrifice are we a people that are more likely to cling fiercely uh, to our rights and even to chafe at the suggestion that we ought to surrender them? Or are we a people that chooses to surrender them for the benefit of others? Oh, that God would so work in our hearts that we become far more ready, that we become far quicker to surrender our rights than we are to claim them. Oh, that our grasp of the gospel would be so clear and our sense of the sufficiency of Christ so strong that we become free and become freer all the time to both see the idols in our own hearts and then to let them slip from our clutching hands. And oh, that the love of Christ Jesus and his body, the church, that our love for him and his people would break down the walls so that we become increasingly incapable of thinking of ourselves apart from the body of Christ to which we belong and apart from the head of that body, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have pledged our faithfulness. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to surrender his rights for us. Thank you, Father, that he went to the cross in our place, not because he had to, but because he chose to out of love. Thank you. Help us, Father, 
to be ready to follow in his footsteps, to be ready to lay down our rights in order that others may see and want to know why and want to know the one we follow. Father, help us to be and to become faithful ambassadors who truly represent the character of our Lord Jesus in all that we say and all that we do. And we ask it in his most precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.